Well, I'm uh, both uh, terrified and excited to dig into this passage this morning. So if you guys would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to just be camped out in verses 21 through 26 this morning. Chapter 5, 21 to 26. Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Anybody encouraged this morning? (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Let's pray. Why don't you grab the hand of the person to your right and to your left? unless you don't like them, that's okay. Or they're wearing chief's gear. I'm really sorry, Dan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just come before you this morning and we ask that you deal with our anger. Um, I pray, Jesus, that you deal with the deep, deep, deep issues in our hearts. And uh, for those of us that are in this room who aren't even aware Um, that these issues exist in us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal them to us. Um, I pray that um, we would turn to you this morning, that we would allow you to do your work in us and do your work through us. And Jesus, I just pray specifically this morning in in regards to this topic of anger, that there would be awesome healing in our church and in the people that are here. I pray that there'd be amazing divine reconciliation Um, I pray for a ton of reconciliation to happen this morning, Jesus, in response to your word. Um, And uh, Jesus, I pray that your peace and your love would abound in this place. Um, And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I read this article this last week that actually was written a few years ago. And this article was about a man in West Virginia. Uh, The guy was 62 years old. And he had shot and killed a teenage boy. And all of this began because he had bumped into this kid in front of this discount store in West Virginia. Literally bumped into him and got so angry that he ended up killing this kid. And um, the guy proclaimed that um, he thought his life was in danger. He said it started with this kid bumping into him. And the guy goes on to say this. He says, he tried to walk on the other side of the street Um, but then the kid bumped into him and and taunted him, and so he just shot him. And then he says, "Nobody's nobody's going to do me like that. And then he adds, I work, I'm a good citizen, I don't do anything to anybody. And I read that this week, and I thought, it doesn't take much to send us over the top, does it? Um, It seems like we live in this day and age where Situations even like this, this particular one are becoming more and more common. 
And as most of us in this room know, it doesn't just start with some sort of bump. Like the issue wasn't that this guy bumped into the kid. Um, The issue wasn't even that there was some sort of argument that transpired. But the issue goes way further back. Um, According to Jesus, the issue actually goes deeper and deeper and deeper within. And for you and I, anger can easily arise in us and it can actually cloud everything. As I talked to a handful of people throughout this last week, um, I was asking them this question, do you struggle with anger? And, uh, and then I'd follow it up with, is that, is that difficult for you? And so uh, we went around the room in our sermon group and um, you know, there was a couple guys that just have some serious anger issues, like punching holes in walls in our office. No, I'm kidding. Uh, most of us, as we go around the room, we're like, I don't really struggle with anger. And I really struggled because when, when the question came around to me and it was asked, like, do you struggle with anger? Um, my response initially is no. I, I don't really. I can't remember the last time I yelled. I can't remember the last time I acted out in anger. Um, and this isn't because, like, I'm a great person. It's just not one of the things that I struggle with. It's not one of my issues. And so um, I, I know that there's many of us even in this room that would think this morning, I don't really struggle with anger. That's not my thing. Maybe you assume, like me, that it's not your struggle. But the more that I ruminated on this this week, uh, I realized that I actually do. And the reality is that um, most of us in this room probably struggle with anger more than we would think, more than we would actually say. Uh, When we usually hear the word anger, we think of people who blow up, we think of people who punch holes in walls. Sometimes I wish I could just do that because it seems like I'd let the steam out better. Um, but that's how some people in this room deal with the anger that, that transpires inside of them. They just, it manifests and they just let it all out. You freak out, you blow up. Somebody cuts you off on the road, what do you do? You, you hit the steering wheel, you throw things, you flip somebody off, like you just blow up. It just comes out. But others of us, which I think is the majority, actually clam up. It's sort of like it simmers within us. Like that that person cuts you off and I'm just gonna kind of stew on it for a while. And what happens the next time you see that car drive by or you actually see that person that cut you off, it all builds back up again. And for some of us, it just clams up and we stuff it. We don't let it all out, but it's still building up within us. And so many of us just internalize it. We internalize anger like a crock pot sort of that's boiling up and it's cooking for hours on hours and the lid's starting to shake and there's steam starting to come out and eventually that stuff's gonna get out. It's gonna get out somehow. But some of us are so good at stuffing it. And there's... Um, Maybe for some of you, just little manifestations of anger here or there, and, and, and many of us struggle, again, with anger more than we would admit or we realize. Some of you blow up, others of you sort of clam up, but this morning, what I'm hoping we can realize is the dangers of anger, because I think Jesus is getting to a much deeper issue. Um, many of us have seen, have, seen, have seen anger destroy nations, we've seen Anger destroy communities of friends. Um, Many of you have seen anger literally destroy your families. And some of us have even seen anger literally destroy a soul. Like just eat, eat away, wreak havoc on somebody. 
And you may not be the person, again, that, that, that goes to such lengths that you would actually allow the anger to manifest, manifest itself in physical violence. But the presence of anger exists in most of us at some point. And it's so serious that we actually have to dig to the root of it, which is what I think Jesus is doing. It's not just dealing with the surface level stuff or the, just the manifestations of it, but where did that come from? If we look here in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is preaching, Jesus is going like way beyond what can be seen on the surface. He's going down to the very thoughts and the very intentions of our heart. The, the words of Jesus sort of read us, don't they? But the, question that, that kind of, the questions that come to mind this morning are, how can we experience healing and change when it comes to anger in our lives? How can we help others experience change and healing in regards to anger? And this is what Jesus begins to address here in this section. He's showing us that the law of God, specifically um, what the Ten Commandments were really getting at, and you'll see this, uh, Josh talked uh, uh, and uh, Josh talked about Jesus' relationship to the law last week and did a stellar job in contrasting the fact that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And this law sort of serves as our filter. It gives us the, this lens that we can sort of understand these next few sections through that we're going to be in for the next few weeks because Jesus will say several times, he'll say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so he'll contrast it. Uh, you, you've heard it said in the law, but, but this is what I say. And so Jesus is sort of interpreting the law of God, which is this, this blueprint of sorts uh, for us, for, for our human flourishing. And so the, the law really reveals God's character, and it revealed how humans were to live. It gave some very specific rules in the law, but by itself, the law is unable to change us because the law actually can't legislate love, can it? And so the law had no ability to change us from the inside out. It could only change the outward, the, the things we did. The, the law by itself was not able to actually deal with our personal problems. It can make us aware of them. It can shine a light on them. It can mitigate them, but it can't actually solve our problems. And so then Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts contrasting. You've heard it said this, thou shalt not murder. And then what does Jesus say? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Like Jesus, God in the flesh, comes into our world and he, he, he proclaims that he's the fulfillment of the law and then he gets down to the very core of our being and, and then Jesus starts this work of making us new. And so the, the, these difficult areas of, of life become like the greatest opportunities to see God at work. And so here in regards to anger, he, he begins by referencing the sixth of the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not murder. And then in verse 21, he says, but I say to you, he, again, he goes beyond the typical understanding of the law, and he shows us what it is he's truly after. The, the religious leaders and the Pharisees of Jesus' day would actually look at the law and they'd say what? They, they'd say, well, I actually didn't kill anyone, so I'm good. 
I didn't go as far as murder, so I can kind of push the bounds. We were joking in our sermon group this week, how many of you grew up even like in junior high and high school, maybe even later in life, where you just pushed the bounds with things. It was all about seeing how far you could get, how far you could push the gray area, like what exactly is sex? (laughs) How far can I push the bounds in my life before it's actually sex? What actually is adultery? How far can I push the bounds before I'm actually crossing that line? And we're so good at pushing the boundaries in our life. And the Pharisees, these religious leaders that Jesus is dealing with, this is what they do. Like, we won't murder, but we'll allow everything to happen up till that point, but we won't follow through with the big one. And so Jesus says, like, you're, you're missing what I'm, really, what I'm really getting at. They, they had doled the law so that it wasn't sharp anymore, like it had no sting. It didn't really cut to the heart. And so the, the point of Jesus' command is, is saying, um, He's not trying to say just stop short of murder. Jesus doesn't say, okay, everyone, just do whatever you're gonna do, but just stop before you actually kill someone. And even in life, if I think back to counsel people have given me at seasons in my life, people counsel us in these ways. They, think, they say things like, man, I know, I know how bad that person frustrated you or what they did. You should just put their face on a punching bag and have at it with the punching bag, right? Just go to town. Just like get it all out as much as you can. Hit it. Like imagine that you're taking it out on them, but you're not actually hurting them. And Jesus is digging into more of the matters of the heart. Like what would actually lead you to putting their face on something and actually taking it out on them in your heart? This is the questioning that Jesus is doing. He's digging deeper and deeper. Um, and, and Jesus is saying that the point of this command is not to just stop short of murder. The point of the command is don't get anywhere near it. Don't, don't allow it in, not even in your thoughts, not even in your words. Before we get to a, a couple specific points this morning, I want to talk a little bit about anger because according to the Bible, Anger in and of itself is not wrong. We had this long discussion this week about righteous anger, a righteous indignation. We see moments in scripture where Jesus himself expresses some anger. And there's this righteous anger, there's this righteous indignation which is actually can be rooted in love. And the Bible talks countless times about God's anger. We, we, we see Jesus display this righteous anger, this perfect anger. We see Jesus being slow to anger. That's why you have these statements like in Ephesians 4.26 when Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So some anger we know can be righteous. We would actually say that someone would be unloving if they didn't get angry about certain things. Wouldn't we say that? For instance, if you heard about rape or about sex trafficking, like if somebody was indifferent to those horrid acts, you'd say, like, wait a minute, like that actually should really tick you off. If someone wasn't, if someone was indifferent to that, we'd be like, like, do you not care? Like, do you not love? So the Bible talks about righteous anger, but the question that I kept asking this week is how do we know when anger is right. I, wrote, I read this, this excerpt from a book this week 
by a man named Jerry Bridges, and uh, he said this. He said, you know anger is right according to two things. One, when it's based on a true perception of evil, not your own perception, but a true perception of evil. That is something that is clearly an offense to God and to his creation. But secondly, when it's self-controlled. When it's self-controlled, there's no retaliation, no blowing up, no losing it, no seeing red, no losing your temper. And so there's this righteous sort of anger. But having said that, most of the time, when the Bible talks about anger in relation to us, like humanity, people, it's not good. (laughs) And that's the kind of anger that Jesus is getting to and that he's talking about in this text this morning. Uh, Most of the ordinary anger that we're used to and that our city and our society accepts is actually sinful in God's sight. And so if we're uh, to be healthy and we're to be thriving in the kingdom of God, like anger itself has to be addressed. And so this morning I want to talk about three sections in this passage. One, um, the acknowledgement of our anger. Two, um, the alternative that God gives to our anger. And then the last, the third, is the antidote to our anger. And so first of all, we need to acknowledge our anger. And that's what Jesus gets us to do in the first section of this passage, beginning in verse 21. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, I, I know that it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I thought I'd make at least one sports reference, uh, but not to football, um, primarily because the Seahawks aren't in the Super Bowl, so I'm going to protest a little bit. Uh, but I once heard a statement from uh, a rugby player that said, um, you want to hit the opponent so hard that they forget their own name, but remember yours for a week. And... Um, I, when my son plays football, like some of the stuff you hear coming out of the coach's mouths are just insane, you know, like, give it to him, hit him as hard as you can, you know, it's just like, this is brutal. But the truth in and of itself, the truth of the Lord, the truth of the word is so powerful that it actually wakes us up. It should sting a little bit. It should cause us to wake up. It should cause us to see the heart of the matter concerning anger as we're dealing with this morning because you can't deal with something that you don't think is a problem. I was so convicted this week as I'm like sitting in that room saying, I don't really deal with anger and I'm not even lying. For three days after that, I just kept thinking like, how does anger manifest itself in Chris's life? Because it's not that I don't deal with it, it's that I suppress it. It's that I find other ways to ruminate on it. It's it's all in my head. It's that I'm thinking about it and I let it eat away at me, but nobody would ever know that I'm actually dealing with it because I don't show it. I don't hit things. I don't say things. I just allow it to eat me up from the inside out. There's no doubt that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, in many cases, even like you and I, thought that because they hadn't killed anyone, everything was fine. Like, how many times have we used this phrase, well, geez, it's not like I killed somebody, all right? (laughs) Not like I murdered somebody. But Jesus points out that there are not only crimes that we commit with our hands, 
but there's actually crimes that we commit with our hearts. And so we have to acknowledge the source of our anger, and that's what Jesus is getting at, the heart. Jesus says that if you commit murder in your heart, it begins in the very center of us, inside of us. Nobody just wakes up one day and just goes out to harm somebody else. It starts somewhere. It begins somewhere in their heart. It's thought through. It's like planned out. It all begins there. And what's wrong at the very center of their heart? It's actually their pride. Like the, the very source of our anger, like this unrighteous anger that we're talking about is pride. Like even as I sit in that room and I say, I don't really deal with anger, where's that coming from? It's my pride. I don't want to admit that I actually have an issue. The, the older I get and supposedly the more wiser I get, so they tell me, right? The older you get, the more wise you get. Is this right? Um, the more I realize that other people can invite our anger they can sort of spur it on, but they're not actually the cause for it. Does that make sense? Like other people can do things to you that causes that to stir up within you, but it's actually you that allows yourself to go there. And yet, how many of us think that it's the other way around? We're like, no, you're the problem. You're the issue. Like I'm not the issue, you're the issue. You're the one that caused this to happen in me. But yet, we ruminate on it, we stir on it, we allow that to build up within us. They may have invited it, but the cause is actually much, much deeper in ourselves. And what's interesting about anger is that it's actually kind of cultivated in, if you really think about it, in this climate of like superiority, superiority. It's cultivated in this climate where like, we sort of perceive ourselves as being above others or better than somebody else. It's unrighteous anger. All you're concerned about really at the core of it is you. Like, if, if anything went wrong today, it's been a disruption to my kingdom plans. A kingdom that's built on me. One comment, a commentator put it like this, find an angry person and you found someone with a wounded ego. And so anger often comes out in selfishness. It comes out in a desire to control. When I was in Guatemala, Guatemala a week before last, I was sitting there one night with um, the, this, this author, this guy that's a counselor, and we had this long conversation. I was really dealing with matters of my heart. I'm like, how do I deal with this? Like, I've been hurt here. I feel this. Like, I have emotional issues here. How do I deal with these things? And he challenged me, and he said, Chris, there's two killers to leadership in your life. He said, one is image management, and two is people-pleasing. Those things will kill you. They will destroy you. And so how's that pan out? Like, honestly, if you're somebody who really cares about how you're perceived, like, if you're somebody who really cares about your image, and let's just say somebody does something to compromise your image or how somebody would perceive you, how's that make you feel? It ticks you off, doesn't it? It makes you angry. Why? Because you're actually losing control of your image that you're trying to uphold yourself. Does anybody here like peace and quiet? No, seriously, how many of you? Wow, more than I thought. There's all the introverts in the room. All the extroverts are like, please don't make me sit in peace and quiet. I hate it. Um, so let's say that you want some peace and quiet and somebody's being noisy. For instance, I'm gonna use my son as an example. He's not in here. He chews very loudly. Um, 
when it is very quiet and he's chewing very loudly with his mouth wide open, something in you gets very frustrated, doesn't it? Like, dude, you need to stop. (laughs) But why do we get on the verge of it? It's because we actually are environment, not able to control our own environment. And when we lose control of our own environment, we start to freak out inside. And if you're like me, again, you don't lash out, you don't blow up, but you clam up and you start thinking about how somebody's got to pay for what they did. <laughs> like you don't react to anger, but it, it, it consumes your heart and you start to develop this, your own narrative in your head of how you're gonna deal with it. And at the core, you want people to pay for what they did. There's nights where I lay in bed and I just stew on things and it's all in my head and I'm running through scenarios in my mind of like how this person needs to pay for that and why they would say that to me. And I would never lash out and I'd probably never kill them. Uh, but in my heart, I've basically done that. <laughs> I've had it out with them in my heart. And in my head. And I think it's interesting when we look at like churches, for instance, because you see a ton of anger manifest itself in close relationships within churches, don't you? And I think sometimes it's because people in like religious communities, in churches, places of faith, are all about control. Like idol, the idol that we hold on to is our control. We want to make sure that things are our way. And so we uh, oftentimes, leaders in churches will like control people. And so they put themselves in positions of leadership in order to control others to get the outcome that they want. And the minute anyone goes outside of that, they're not concerned with the truth anymore and the leader's lost control and now this frustration develops and you watch in churches over and over again as there's just division upon division upon division. Hearts that are at odds with one another, maybe even sitting in this room this morning. And so we often get angry and I think we rarely ask the question, why? Like, and that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the heart. He's getting down to the core of our anger. Think about this. When you're talking to your kids, for example, and uh, maybe they've done something wrong. Now, um, obviously, we're talking about your kids and not mine when I talk about this because mine don't do anything wrong. But uh, let's just say, like, one brother hits another brother. And uh, as a parent, I was thinking about this this week, like, my kids don't hit each other. Please don't take this that way. Uh, I don't know the last time that happened. But um, let's say one brother hits the other. How do we usually discipline our kids when we see that action taking place in our home? What do we usually say to our kids? We say, what did you do? And then what's our kid's response? I hit my brother. And then we say, like, well, what should you have done? And then what's their response? Not hit him. (laughs) And I think it's really interesting when you think about these questions that we will often use in parenting when we ask our kids this, because there's the potential of raising up little Pharisees when we ask questions like that, isn't there? Because what we're dealing with is just the action. 
Like, we're really just asking, like, what did you do wrong? I hit him. Why did you do that? Well, I I, I just wanted to. (laughs) And we don't get into, like, the really crucial question, which is what I love so much about what Jesus is going to get at in these next few weeks is digging into the crucial questions, not just talking about murder, but let's talk about what drives murder. Let's Let's go back a little bit. Let's get to the core of your heart and see what's built over the years that has led to the manifestation of actually taking that out on another life. And so Jesus starts at the source, and then he goes to the symptoms, and then he goes to the symptoms by addressing, like in this specific example, the way that we talk to one another. Like our anger begins in the heart, and that's the crime. But, but then it, it works its way into like our hurtful deeds, it works its way into our actions, like it manifests itself. And so now Jesus uses the example here, he says, you fool, right? He says, But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. How interesting that Jesus takes it that far. I I know it might be kind of humorous to us when we see you fool, because who uses that language today, right? You fool, like, that just sounds like Christian cussing, sort of. But, uh, if you really take that word, like what Jesus is saying, he's actually talking about a brother that would say something very degrading, very belittling to somebody else. Like a a modern day equivalent would maybe be like a brother saying, you stupid idiot. Like it's pushing people down. It's, It's pushing people down to the point where we convince them that they're not good for anything. And it's contempt. John Stott said this. He said, anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone who's in the way. And the great temptation is to think and act in this way, especially to those closest to us. Notice that Jesus refers to this person as what? A brother. He doesn't doesn't say just another human being, another person. He says a brother, which, which actually brings to mind family. It brings to mind community. It brings to mind even the church family. And so let's be honest, like we struggle the most with bitterness and resentment and anger in more cases than not, usually with people where? Here. Brother and brother and sister and sister. People that are part of the church together. And why is that? Because we actually expect more of people in the church, like we're more familiar with them, we're around them more. You'd think it would actually cause us to become more gracious to people, but actually the the sin in our heart turns to anger and we start pushing people out. And and so we begin uh, to act on the anger that's in us and even if it's like little comments here and there that we say to people, like we might think it's a small deal for us, but it's actually huge in the eyes of the Lord. For out of the abundance of the heart, he says what? The mouth speaks. Like, I, I mean, imagine if we were to go around and everything that we actually said was recorded. 
behind closed doors, in private, everything that we did and said was being recorded. Like those conversations, those snide remarks that we make about others, those comments that we make toward other people, like why would we say those things? And I hope this morning that we realize there's this warning, like what Jesus wants us to acknowledge is the sentence for our anger. Like he says in the latter part of verse 22, he says, Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Like, Jesus wakes us up. It's like this sting. And this, this word that Jesus uses here when he talks about the hell of fire is this word Gehenna. And historically, in the Old Testament, it was this place where horrible and wicked idolatry was done. It was this place that God had judged. It was like hell. And so sometimes in giving ourselves to sinful anger, we begin to actually devalue other people. We begin to devalue those who God created, like those who are his people. The ongoing anger within us will literally destroy our hearts and souls and it grows like a cancer in the community of faith. And Jesus says to actually deal with it now because the consequences are great, because the consequences are eternal and church. Like this is why Jesus deals with this issue in the way that he does. The, the severity of his words actually should awaken our hearts a little bit to the value of the person that's sitting next to us this morning. How much God loves them what his plan is for them. And then Jesus goes on to describe this alternative to anger. Verse 23 to 26, he sort of gives two examples for us. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penalty. And there's two points that I kind of want to make this morning. The first is this, is that we actually pursue reconciliation with people. And it's interesting, in the last two months, I think this has come up twice. Uh, Henry talked about reconciliation. About a month prior to that, it came up uh, in one of the other sermons that we preached. And I think as a church, we have to realize the, the priority that Jesus gives to reconciliation, that we are pursuers of reconciliation with people. Like, it matters so much to the Lord. Like, dealing with anger matters so much in the church, not only just in our own hearts, but person to person, in the midst of the community of faith. It matters so much that Jesus points out its urgency and the priority of pursuing reconciliation with other people. And so the scene that Jesus sort of describes this is actually kind of funny because a worshiper at that time in Israel would like rarely get the chance to go to the temple and then offer up their sacrifice or offer up their gift to the Lord. And if you were in Galilee, it actually would take you days to walk down to the place that you would offer up this gift at the altar. And so Jesus says that you may have traveled like three days if you came from Galilee to get to the place where you're offering up this gift. But if you remember there at the altar, 
before you offer your, offer your gift at the altar that someone has something against you, what does he say to do? Leave the gift and go back and be reconciled to that person. Like, how many of you after walking three days, potentially, to the place you're about to offer your gift and you realize you've got something against your brother would actually want to have to lay that thing down, walk back three days, deal with your brother, walk back three days, offer up the sacrifice that you're gonna give, walk back. I mean, this is a lot of work when you really think about it. And Jesus, I think, in this text is showing the importance and the priority that we have in dealing with these things. He, he says that that's how important reconciliation is, that you should leave your gift at the altar, that you should be reconciled because this religious ceremony, the, this worship that you're about to give is actually no replacement for substance. Like go back to the person and do the hard work. And we find so many, like the, these immediate actions that God gives us, these practical lessons in here, even in this very sentence where he's telling us that, that there's sort of this urgency and like leave your gift, go back, be reconciled to that person, do the hard work, even after you've gone all that way, no matter how much it costs you, go back and reconcile to that person. And you could even say that you're in this church this morning and you're listening to this message about anger and maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring something up within you this morning and he's causing you to become aware of what it is that's actually going on in your heart, that this issue exists between you and potentially somebody else that you're not reconciled to this morning. And it says before you take communion, like even what we're gonna do this morning, before you offer up your gift, before you go through this religious experience, this worshipful moment, before you do all of this stuff, be reconciled. And so for some of you this morning, as weird as it sounds, it may mean making a phone call. For some of you this morning, it may be a text message, as much as I don't want you texting during my sermon this morning. Um, if there's somebody that you know you need to be reconciled to, what is keeping you from taking that step this morning? But Jesus' point is really clear, like you go, you have to be reconciled because anger is so destructive. Like, like pursuing reconciliation should be of utmost importance to the follower of Jesus. And it goes against all our tendencies, which is actually just to leave it, to ignore it. I'm gonna be really honest with you. About five months ago, there was somebody that I had somewhere one night time with and I show up at this worship night somewhere one night and that person's there and I haven't seen him in months for an hour straight during this worship night I could not concentrate on worship I couldn't do it I tried the whole time but what was actually going on inside of my heart is I'm thinking about this person like it's not okay that there's this block that exists between us like why, as followers of Jesus, are we allowing that to exist? And it, it inhibited my worship of the Lord. Like I couldn't do it. It was the craziest experience, the only experience like that I've had in my life where now I understood as people walk into this room on a Sunday morning, some of you husbands and wives are at odds with one another and then we start playing songs and we encourage people to get into worship and it's like, I can't do it. 
Because actually I'm at odds with the person next to me that God created in his image that he loves. And I'm actually allowing myself to be separated from them. And actually I'm diminishing their worth by continuing to allow unreconciliation to exist between me and them. And that shouldn't sit right with us. And Jesus says, leave what's on the plate on the plate. Whatever you're doing, stop. Go and deal with it. It's, it's not only of the utmost importance, but it's actually wonderfully healing. Has anybody been through major reconciliation in their life before? Where everything in you was like in turmoil and you could just sense it and feel it and then when that reconciliation comes, you can like breathe again. Has anybody ever felt that? You sense that freedom that Jesus intended for you to experience from the beginning, but you allowed your anger and everything to build up so much inside of you that you actually begin to allow these walls to be built up between you and the people that God has called you to love. The New Testament tells us that because Jesus came we no longer offer sacrifices. He actually says we, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in Romans 12. Living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing to him. Like our worship is to be this daily worship in attitude and this daily worship in action. We're to offer our lives to him every single day. And as we do, he will actually make us aware about the deeper issues that exist within us, about our wrong. And he will actually compel us to go deal with it, to make it right. Like, and we need to respond as the spirit leads and go do it. But what's interesting is that there's even more here, I think, than what meets the eye. And it shows what kind of love God is after among his people. Notice that he says, if someone has something against you. Isn't that crazy? It doesn't say if you have something against somebody else, go make it right. It says if somebody has something against you. It doesn't say if you go to offer your gift and you have something against someone, although I think it certainly includes that. But he goes so far as to say if someone has something against you. Like, you may not even have something against them when, uh, uh, when you were thinking about them, but do they have something against you? Go and seek them out. Jesus was talking about who should make the first move. Let it be you. Be the first to take the first step. The, the minute you're made aware of it, even if you don't have something against them, but you know they have something on you, make the first move and go be reconciled to them in church. Ask yourself this question honestly right now. Am I responsible for somebody else's grudge? Am I responsible for my spouse's grudge? Am I responsible for, responsible for my children's grudge? Am I responsible for that person that I serve with at church, their grudge? Am I responsible for my coworkers? grudge. You need to ask those questions and then you need to go and seek out that person. Why? Because the same God that loves you, that provided this way out by sending his son Jesus to the cross to free you, to free your soul, is the same God that's asking you to extend that forgiveness to somebody else, to be freed from it. Jesus says, go to them. 
And this is the kind of love that I think that God is after. Let's deal with it. We, we, we don't like to make the first move. This is what Jesus is telling us to do. It's the priority of pursuing reconciliation with a, with a person. It's that important. And then the second example that he uses is pursuing resolution for the problem. Because you can actually pursue the person and go be reconciled, but then there's also a deeper work that needs to be done in the forgiveness that happens in the process of that reconciliation, dealing with the problem. And so he's not just saying, hey, like I wanna be reconciled, and I'm gonna pretend like that problem that exists between us doesn't exist anymore. He says, no, like don't do that. He says, you need to seek resolution for the problem, but you need to know first and foremost the importance of the person, the importance of the person. What does he think of them? They should be of your utmost concern. And, and part of seeking reconciliation with them is going to them and saying, hey, have I done something that has caused you to be angry towards me or is giving you cause to hate me? Jesus doesn't just want problems to be addressed. He actually wants there to be true forgiveness. And he, he ends by saying, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Like one of the greatest signs, I think, of, of maturity that I want to see more of in my own life and that I think we should desire to see more of in our lives, I don't care how young or old you are, is the ability to resolve conflict. The ability to resolve conflict without blowing up, without freaking out, without becoming angry, murderous, bitter in our hearts. In fact, one of the ways you can figure out whether or not your friendships are healthy is how you work out conflict in those relationships with others. My greatest friendships have been through the most strain. And we choose Jesus. We choose not to allow those walls to be built up and when they are, we deal with them. For those of you in this room that are wanting to get married, anybody? Desiring a spouse? One of you, that's awesome. Singleness is fine. Um, Some of you in this room are engaged and you're working towards marriage. Like that should be a major discussion in your engagement process is how do we resolve conflict so we don't allow things to get to the point where division happens. It's really interesting, in, in these days, um, if you were put into a dead, so you prison, you actually couldn't earn anything while you were in prison. And so you couldn't make any money while you were in prison. And Jesus is actually saying, you need to get things sorted out now. Of course with the person, but most of all, like be reconciled to God himself. Is there unresolved conflict that you're putting off, that you keep putting on the back burner, that you keep saying, no, later, 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 I'll deal with it, I'll deal with it, and Jesus is saying, deal with it now. For some of you, it may be that God's already brought that person to mind this morning. But as we take communion as we close this morning, as we sat around in our sermon group this week and we said, what are the things, like as, we, as, as Jesus talks about the person coming to the altar to present their gift to the Lord. Let's modernize that a bit. What 
is the gift for us? And what are the venues that we come to to offer our gift to the Lord? And one of those venues is this morning. Anybody ever fight with your spouse on the way to church on Sunday mornings? One of you, and you're not even married. No. Uh, People talk about that all the time, don't they? Like the enemy wants nothing less than to get in there because you're, you're on your way to, to do spiritual business. When we come here and we worship, we don't just sing songs and play Christian karaoke because it's fun and because we all like the top 40s that we can hear on Christian radio. If I want that, I will turn the radio on and I'll listen to it. I won't come and sing it with you guys. You know, I could care less. What I want to do is come and present my life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. I want to acknowledge him as the one who's holy, the one who deserves all of our worship. And how do you give him your worship? You die to yourself and you present your life to him as a living sacrifice. We come and worship, and many of us will be in the midst of worship and yet at odds with others. This morning, we're coming to take communion And what are we remembering when we take communion? Think about how ironic this is. What are we remembering? This isn't rhetorical. Somebody tell me. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, right? His body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Why? For us to be reconciled to the creator God. So when we take communion, we're acknowledging God is the creator God loved me so much that he sent his son to die a brutal death. He became the sacrifice for me that I couldn't offer on my own. And in doing so, through the blood and the body of Jesus, God reconciles us to himself. And so think about how ironic it is that we come and we go to take communion, and we say we remember what God did for us, but we hold on to the things that we've done to others. Think about how ironic that is. And this morning, as we come to take communion, this isn't like I'm trying to warn you, don't come take communion. It's just that I I do hope that you would stop that in your tracks this morning and realize the tremendous gift that Jesus has offered us in in his death and his resurrection. Think about the weight of what God has done for us. And in light of what God has done for us, how can we allow our hearts to be enslaved to anger and to bitterness and to irreconcilable differences? I had a friend who a pastor once told him, what you did to me is irreconcilable. And I thought, that's not okay. Everything between believers should be reconcilable because God paid the ultimate price to reconcile us to him. So I don't care how bad the offense is. Jesus can cover it. Amen? Man, I hope as we dig into these next few weeks, though the language gets pretty harsh, I hope we see that There's a portion of this that we desperately need Jesus to get us through this, don't we? I mean, I'm so glad that I don't have to abide by the 600 laws 
mapped out for me in the Old Testament. Like I just would not make it. Any of you that have traveled to Israel anytime recently, um, you know that if you go into uh, any hotel or whatever on the Sabbath day, um, they have like the Sabbath elevator and the regular elevator because the the Sabbath elevator, all the buttons are pushed so it stops at every floor and you don't have to do any work and touch anything. And uh, it's interesting to see how the Jews have cut corners and tried to make things work to fit into their world. And I think what we're acknowledging this morning is that um, it's not about making Jesus fit into our world. It's about us living into his. And as we talk about this kingdom that he's established, that he's invited us to live into, and the only way to live into that is to put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that, man, there is no power in you, there's no strength in you, no matter how awesome you are, to force yourself to reconcile with others. You cannot do it. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. What you couldn't do for yourself, he did for you. As we take communion this morning, we acknowledge what Jesus did for us, the gift he gave, he was for you and I. And so I do pray this morning that before you even come up and take communion, that let God search your heart. God, search your heart this morning. Is there a text message you need to send? Is there a phone call you need to make? We have this awesome soundproof foyer out here you're welcome to go use. Is there an email you need to send? Is there a hug you need to give? Is there a hand you need to extend this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, want to thank you for the gift that you are to us. I thank you, Jesus, that you don't just look down on humanity and say, get it together, (laughs) but that you took the first step towards us. You came and you rescued us. You forgave us. You renew us. You put your spirit within us. You call us to walk in your spirit, to live in such a way that It reflects Jesus to the world that we live in, into the community that we work and play and live. So I pray, God, that you would deal with the anger that might exist in some of us, for those of us that don't think they have it. Show them the roots this morning, God, not for legalism's sake, but for freedom's sake, Jesus. They don't have to hold on to those things. I pray, Jesus, that our unrighteous anger would be seen for what it is, that it would be confessed and repented for. And Father, I just pray that you'd melt our hearts this morning. I pray that your spirit would prompt us to be reconciled first to you, second to those that we have indifference with. Jesus, I pray that your kingdom come and your will be done. I pray every soul in this room would experience the freedom only offered through Jesus this morning. And I pray your blessing upon each individual in here as we partake in communion this morning. God, protect us from doing this out of a religious function. God, may this have weight. 
May this be a joyful experience. May this be an awesome reminder to us of your blood shed on that cross and your body broken and we know Jesus. The best part of the story is that you did not stay in that grave. And God, I thank you for the resurrection life that you've offered to us through your spirit. And I pray you'd infuse each and every believer in this room to not just be Christians, but to be infused by your spirit to live as followers of Jesus. Forgiven people, reconciled people, grace-filled, spirit-empowered, love-drenched. I pray, Jesus, in your name, that your will and your way be done in us and through us. Amen. I'm going to invite um, the people who are passing out communion to come up here this morning. As we enter into this time of communion, uh, my challenge for you, let the Lord search your heart this morning. Come forward and partake in communion as the Lord leads you and remember what it is you're doing this morning. You're remembering God. You're remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us and the great gift that God gave us in his son, Jesus, this morning. And the best part of it all, you guys, is that we don't leave here stale, stagnant Christians. Amen? We live here spirit-empowered people. We don't function in the kingdom of this world. We function in the kingdom of God. And he has a great plan for your lives. And I just would want nothing less than to watch true reconciliation come to his people in our city because I think it will unite all as we come to him and realize he's the only way we can be reconciled to one another. Like, be messengers of his good news. Be proponents of his reconciliation and his unity. And go and live by the power and the spirit of the Most High God. Amen. Let's worship. And then as you feel led, come forward and take communion this morning.